Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello there and welcome to Better at Work. On this episode, I am joined by someone I've actually followed for quite a while, the amazing Melody Wilding. Now, Melody is a human behavior professor, executive coach and author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. Now, Melody helps people break free from self-doubt, overwhelm, imposter syndrome and overthinking to improve their confidence at work. And Melody was recently named one of Business Insider's most innovative coaches. Melody coined the groundbreaking idea of sensitive striving. Her book, Trust Yourself, offers concrete steps. And I mean concrete because I followed these steps and I'll mention more of that in this podcast. Concrete steps to help you break free from stress, perfectionism and self-doubt so you can find the confidence to work and lead effectively. Melody, welcome to Better at Work. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So delighted to have you. Now, we normally start the podcast before we even get into the conversation. We ask you, where did it all begin for you? Why did you become so interested in helping people break free from stress, perfectionism, people pleasing? Where did this all start? Trust yourself really came about and the whole idea of being a sensitive striver came directly from personal experience. They say that you teach what you most need to learn. And that is 110% true in my case, that everything I talk about in the book, actually, I I open the book with a story of a really severe burnout. That was my wake up call to how my qualities of being sensitive and ambitious while had helped me in my career were really starting to hurt me and hold me back. All of this work comes from a lot of personal experience, as well as a lot of training and now professional experience over the last 10 years or so. Your book, which I mentioned already, Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions for Success, was definitely one of my favorite reads of 2021. And it was a real roadmap for me even starting this podcast. And I do genuinely mean that. So with the book, What was your core aim in writing it? What problem were you aiming to solve with the book? I, after coaching for 10 years, had seen over and over and over again how the people I was working with were extremely high achieving. And so from the outside, it looked like they were very put together, that they had it all. But on the inside, they were really struggling and suffering with all of the ways they were getting in their own way. In particular, in my work, in the beginning, I didn't put my finger on the sensitivity piece, but that became more and more apparent that these people related to their work and themselves differently because of the way they were wired. And because of that wiring, they really felt like an outsider. 
So helping those people feel seen, feel heard, but more importantly, giving them a roadmap so that they could have that inner peace and actually enjoy their success. Because what are we working so hard for then, if not that? Well, your PDF actually with your book is one of the best PDFs I've ever seen with a book because it's very easy to read. It's written in very brain friendly language, I got to say, very easy to follow. But we'll get into a little bit more of that because I've been uh, leveraging that quite a bit. I totally bought into the whole concept of a sensitive striver. In fact, I actually drove a lot of people crazy with it last year because I kept saying, excuse me, I'm a sensitive striver. I got more confidence saying it. You know, I probably wouldn't have said that two years ago. Now, can you tell our listeners what are some of the characteristics of a sensitive striver? I know you said it's a small portion of the population, but I'm like, there's a lot of people like this. But tell us a little bit about uh, the characteristics of a sensitive striver. Absolutely. There are a lot of people like this. One in five people is highly sensitive. So it's 20% of the population. I do want to make it clear that sensitivity is not some fluffy thing that people are, aren't just hardy enough. We're not tough enough. It's a very biological genetic difference that a certain part of the population has. So being highly sensitive means you have a more highly calibrated nervous system. So if you are someone who feels like you experience everything around you in high definition, if it seems like you are more deeply affected by situations that you need more time to adjust to change, if you are a little bit slower to make decisions because you have to think things through, those are all great signs of sensitivity. The striver piece comes in because that that's the ambition piece. So if you're someone who is really driven, you push yourself to achieve goals, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to succeed as well. That's striving, just like sensitivity has an upside and a downside, then all of this may, may be you. As well in the book, you gave a great example. Someone could be sitting in a meeting with their boss. The meeting goes pretty okay, but you're still kind of going, mm, maybe it didn't go that well. Then you go back to your desk. Five minutes later, you see your boss in the meeting room raising their eyes to heaven and you go, oh, that's about me. He didn't like it or she didn't like it. And I think there's a lot of people like that who are looking and going, oh, she or he didn't like it. I loved that example that you had in the book because I do think a lot of people in the workplace do put themselves under a lot of pressure and they are looking for symbols that back up what they're thinking negatively potentially about themselves. 100%. Sensitive strivers, uh, sensitive people overall tend to be more conscientious, right? They're much more detailed. They're very dedicated, but that can be perfectionistic and have a lot of self-criticism that comes along with it. So as you were saying, we do have these superpowers of observation and perceptiveness, but because we tend to sometimes have lower self-esteem or self-confidence, we have a lot of negative narratives about ourselves being inadequate or not good enough. And then we attune to the information in the environment and tell ourselves a story to make those observations fit that negative story about ourselves. So you're exactly right. We have to be very cognizant and, and careful with that. You mentioned how managers love people that are sensitive strivers, right? Super conscientious, but also striving. Tell us a little bit about why did the managers like them? I mean, is it the obvious they just work like crazy and <laughs> burn themselves out? Or what, what do you think? I think I think there's a bit of that. Yes. So there there is research to show that people with higher sensitivity 
but managers tend to appreciate and rate people with higher sensitivity as higher contributors because they are conscientious, they're dedicated, they are highly empathetic and emotionally intelligent. And I know that's a big focus of your podcast here is being more successful. And those soft skills, you know, I like to think of them more as human skills, are more important now than ever before, but also become more important the higher you rise because you need to be able to influence, persuade, build relationships with people. And sensitive people can do that effectively. I've seen in the past, you know, you can sit in a meeting and you can pick up different signals than others in the meeting. And I actually think if you are able to take those signals, if you're, say, managing a big change program or whatever and go, she wasn't happy in that meeting. It is actually a real benefit to be able to go back and then go, okay. And as you said, the emotional intelligence side does become more important the more senior you get, because you do need to bring more people on the journey. You need to be able to tell the story, but you also need to pick up the signals of going, what story is going to work and which one is not going to work, which is why I love what you're saying here. And it leads me on to my next question. You do say that sensitivity can be a superpower, and we kind of touched on a little bit there. Now, I think in the world of work, people would not equate sensitivity with success. (laughs) Tell us a bit more why you think sensitivity actually can be a superpower. Clients tell me all the time that they are afraid to speak up in meetings. They don't want to voice an idea because no one else has shared it yet, so it must be a bad idea, when in actuality... There are MRI studies to show that the sensitive brain, because of the depth of processing, tends to have more and deeper connections in parts of the brain that put together disparate information. So many times sensitive people are one or two steps ahead of the rest of the group. You've already highlighted a gap or seen an opportunity that other people haven't. And that can be a tremendous asset, not just to your career, but in terms of innovation and creativity for the rest of the team. So that's why that's another reason why I'm so passionate about this is because I think sensitive people have so much to offer. Just imagine what our workplaces would be like if we had people that were more empathetic (laughs) in leadership that cared more about how does everybody feel and what's the general, how do we create psychological safety here as well? So... I remember reading in the book as well, having this heightened sensitivity, it is really beneficial, but it can also be challenging if it gets out of whack. And so it's trying to find the balance. Um, So we'll definitely talk about that as well. But I think the overall message here is use it as a power, a superpower, because I actually think following me reading your book, I'm more embraced being overly sensitive and understanding kind of the environment more than I did, say, prior to reading your book. I genuinely mean that. I think that a lot of people get hurt by criticism, sometimes dressed as feedback. They worry about work once they've logged off. They're still worrying about work and they take it home with them. So and and I think I personally have done this. People equate their kind of self-worth with their jobs and where they are in society and all of this. I know it's a very broad question, Melody, but how can people stop taking work so personally? I think what you touched on there about the relationship between your work and identity is such a core part of that. Because if you see your value as my value is only as important as as productive, if you are not productive, then who am I? So Mm. I think that's an important piece there. I, I talk a lot about diversifying your identity, because if everything you do is your work, 
that's a very precarious place to be because if work doesn't go well, I mean, we're maybe on the heels or entering into a recession rather, and work may be more challenging for people in the coming months. That's out of your control. But if work is your everything, you're much more likely to internalize everything that's happening and to make it mean something negative about you. But if you have other aspects of your identity that you can invest in, then it's sort of like having a diversified stock portfolio. If your stocks aren't doing well, then at least you have bonds or other types of securities that keep you safe. Our podcast says when work is better, life is better. And I do think that is true, but work shouldn't be the center of your bloody life. Now, in the book, I loved this part of the book, and I've talked about this with a lot of my friends. You have the honor roll hangover. Would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about the honor roll hangover? Because of our qualities as sensitive strivers, we are very driven to please people and to want to do things correctly. Our conditioning growing up, especially in the American school system, I'm going to guess this is somewhat similar overseas, you are rewarded for being the good boy or girl, for staying in line, for following the rules, for getting gold stars and A pluses. And that sort of check the box, make other people happy follows us all through our upbringing, and then follows us into our careers. Where that same, I need to get the A plus mindset, or I'm a failure, can really start to hold you back in your career. When I think of the honor roll hangover, it's like you're trying to keep all the balls up in the air. I've got to keep everyone happy. I've got to please everyone. So it's a juggling act. So maybe it's the juggling hangover for people outside of the US. You're juggling so many things around perfectionism, people pleasing, and you're over-functioning that you've got a hangover from all the juggling. You nailed it. And as you said, there are those three parts to the honor roll hangover, the perfectionism, people pleasing and overfunctioning. And what I see, I was just talking to a client about this earlier this week, is that we act as if our plate can just keep expanding. Yes, I'll do that. Sure, I can do that. And we don't eliminate. And that's something I advocate for in the book is really looking at Where are you acting in your career or in your life out of this sense of obligation and should? And how can you start to detox and actually let go, quit some of those goals that aren't really yours or that have lost their effectiveness for you to make space just to even hear yourself again? Because so many people, we have been following this tick one box after another that we don't even know what we want. We have to regain that muscle of being able to listen to ourselves and trust ourselves. I've done your honor roll hangover detox and this is in the book. It's really laid out really well. It's like, you know, starting the day, morning activity. Felt bad about myself as I looked at social media while eating breakfast. How did it manifest itself? Like, how did you start the first hangover? What change will I make? Watch an inspirational video instead of scrolling my feeds. And what does this provide or allow me to do? Nourish my mind and do something for myself before the workday starts. It's so true, right? Because, and I mean, that's just one example. Uh, Melody has lots of examples in there, but just some really good tips on stopping yourself getting caught up in this vicious cycle. Your research showed something very surprising to me, Melody, and I I was really shocked about this and I was going, oh my God, I cannot believe it. The fact that there isn't much difference between men and women around the levels of sensitivity. I would have always thought women are often seen as more sensitive 
Tell us a little bit more about your research, because that was a real surprise to me. I want to give credit where credit is due. And so this is research that is done by Dr. Elaine Aaron and her colleague. She has studied high sensitivity for over 40 years. She's the foremost researcher on this trait. And what she has found, exactly what you said, that because sensitivity is a biological trait, it's related to how your brain processes chemicals like dopamine, norepinephrine, neurochemicals, it's fairly equal among all genders just like any other trait would be. Now, what's interesting, they don't know exactly why this is, but at birth, boys are actually more sensitive than girls, which they measure as being startled more easily. So boys are more responsive to the environment. And there could be all sorts of theories for that. But as you were saying, then socialization comes into play. So we have a nature piece, which is, okay, this is a genetic difference in about 50-50, but then socialization comes in. Just like you said, traditionally, boys are socialized to be outgoing, take risks, get messy, be bold. For men, that can be a double bind because if they are a boy who's a bit more sensitive, you may be more cautious or reserved and you're chastised for not being macho enough or, or not being outgoing enough. And girls, on the other hand, are taught to stay in your place, be likable and agreeable because that's how people like you. And especially when we get into our careers, do not be emotional because then you're hysteric. There's a double bind on both sides, which is such a shame and it points towards just these false beliefs we've carried about sensitivity for decades. We have to talk about imposter syndrome because we've all heard it. I've definitely had it, still probably have it. Tell us a little bit about imposter syndrome and the impact it can have on us. Imposter syndrome, very simply put, is the feeling of being a fake or a fraud despite accomplishments. So this is very common among sensitive strivers because we're so attuned to our environment. But that means we compare ourselves to other people more. The striving side, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to succeed. So if we are not the absolute expert in something, we may not raise our hand or we may hold back because we don't think I could be a natural at that. Imposter syndrome is really that fear of being found out as incompetent or unqualified. It's such a problem for a lot of people. So many people feel like it. You know, even when I put out this podcast first, I really had it bad. Then I was like, oh, there's so many more better people doing podcasts than me. And I was like, I just don't think I should do it. You know, I, I had read your book. I was like, I'm going to do it. Then I went through that little bit of fear of failure and judgment. And then a lady, uh, Carly, gave me some advice and I said, I just don't know if I'll put it out there. And she goes, but what if every author that wrote a book thought someone else has written a book? And it was such good advice. I thought it was such a leveler. I was like, actually, it's true because everyone experiences the world differently. My experience is different to someone, some other podcasters experience. It really helps. So between your book and Carly giving me some tips, I have tried to banish my imposter syndrome. Still work to do, though. But that, I think, is an important point that mm. you have to take action in order to feel confident. If you had just 
waited around and said, well, when I feel ready, I'll start this podcast. We would not be here having this conversation. So you took action. And now I'm sure every interview, every time you put out an episode, you feel more competent. You feel like, hey, I can do this. People are enjoying it. And I think that's a great lesson for people about imposter syndrome that you have to work with it and through it. I agree. I agree. It's funny you say that. I, I was only just saying to someone yesterday, I'm so shocked with get, getting the nice emails from people going there, enjoying the episodes, etc. I always thought they would, but you just have those moments, right? We all have those little moments. So yeah, I think it's a lesson for all of us. And I love your advice, advice there. Now, I know you're not going to agree with this one because uh, I read in your book, but I had a boss previously who used to say a lot, fake it till you make it. You don't agree with this approach. Tell us a little bit why. I don't agree with the fake it till you make it because I think it implies that in order to be successful and to feel confident, you have to be something you're not. And that's what I think is a little dangerous about saying this to people. I think what's truer than fake it till you make it is take action and then the confidence will come. It's sort of saying the same thing, but different. But I think for sensitive people, because we have been told our entire lives, stop taking things too personally. Why does everything stick with you? You just need to grow a thicker skin. We've been told our entire lives to be different than who we are and to put on a mask and try to be like the other 80% around you. Fake it till you make it for that reason can be counterproductive. Yeah, I've never liked that fake it till you make it. I, I just everything about it, even the words fake it till you make it. It's just it feels like you're going to deceive people or something. I don't know. It's just not something I could do. If you're going to do something like the reason I call this podcast better at work is I'm a big fan of better every day. Just try one thing today to just move yourself along. And even when I've managed big teams in large companies, I go, what's the one little thing we can do today to just move it along? They go, this project's huge. It's going to take us three years. And people become so overwhelmed. I go, but is there one thing we can do? Like who was managing this project before? Tony, can we email Tony today and ask him, can we have a meeting with him tomorrow? They go, oh, okay. And you just go like, let's just do one thing. And I think that's better than fake it till you make it. Just keep trying, move the dial. I think that ties in perfectly to imposter syndrome and the honor roll hangover, which go hand in hand. Both make us believe that we have to have these massive, epic successes and we need to constantly be taking these huge leaps when in fact, like you were saying, it's 1% improvement or just learning to acknowledge for yourself the small wins and victories and moments you made yourself proud every day, because that's that's how you internalize a sense of self-worth. It's not just waiting for these epic successes that come along once a year, every three years, but it's about learning to give yourself that credit along the way. Absolutely. And even when I was doing this, you know, when we're coming up with the branding and everything going, okay, whose brand do I really like? I'm going to find out who actually did that? Who was the creative force behind that? Email them, have a call with them, see what happens, tell them what my vision is. And you know what? Then you get excited more and you bring more ideas. It's almost a little bit like a snowball effect. It like just gets bigger and bigger. And as you said, it's not one big moment. It's a collection of little moments all coming together. It sounds like you and I are very aligned on, on that approach. <laughs> You put in the book about the workplace people pleaser. Now, I got to tell you, I am a fully fledged member of the work 
workplace people pleaser club. I've had my membership now, Melody, for maybe about over 20 years. Tell us a little bit about being a workplace people pleaser. And I'd love some tips for us pleasers so that we can leave this club. A lot of us are ready to leave. This is another component of the honor roll hangover is people pleasing, which comes down to putting other people's needs ahead of your own. Yes, it comes from wanting to be helpful and gracious and and serve other people. But really what people pleasing is, is about is your own lack of confidence that you want other people to say you're okay or that they like you or that you're good. You may say yes to all sorts of requests. You may hold back or change your thoughts. You're very quick to accept blame. Even when something's not your fault, you run all of your ideas. I I see this a lot in the workplace where people say, but I'm someone who loves to get consensus. And I think this emphasis on consensus and finding alignment is wonderful, but we can use that to hide behind when in fact it's you're afraid to make a judgment call and a move. What do we do about this? I think a powerful one is creating more personal policies and procedures. People pleasers are folks who are very responsive to everybody else's needs, which means that you may customize, you may change your typical protocol because someone asks you for a favor or this is a one-off unique situation. So having some standardized procedures. So for example, I had a client once who was a product manager. If you are in product, you know you are constantly getting requests from all sides. You have to make everyone happy. He would do one thing for marketing, but then business development would be upset. So he was constantly in this battle of he couldn't keep anybody happy. So what we devised for him was a system where if other teams had requests, they literally had to fill out a form with information, details about, tell me more about this request. Why are you asking for this? What's the urgency? Number one, upfront that decreased the amount that came in for him because people had to take that extra step. He wasn't just fixing everything for them and sort of when they said jump, he asked how high. So that automatically helped. But it also allowed him to be much more protective of his time, much more intentional about what he said yes and what he said no to. So I think thinking about how can you standardize, streamline your work to make it more equitable rather than doing custom one-off requests for everyone. But I love that, like having processes around it, that's a great tip for our listeners, particularly if you feel you're caught in the middle of different areas, etc. I'll, I'll share one more. And the, that's the idea of strategic silence. People pleasers, in order to ease our own fears, we tend to overcompensate by sharing more information, by finishing people's sentences, by qualifying our requests. So this comes up most often where you ask someone else for something, but then you throw yourself under the bus and say, oh, you know, if you can't get to it, that's no problem. It's actually not that big of a deal. We can take it on. Don't worry about it. Actually, just forget I asked you, right? And you negate yourself. And so instead, I want all of the people pleasers out there to practice just pausing three to five seconds after you make a request. Do not say anything. It's going to force you to sit with your own discomfort with asking. But it also means that you're giving the other person time to process and you're going to get a more honest 
response. Typically, it helps the conversation go deeper and the other person fills in gaps rather than you just automatically undermining yourself. I think that is a fantastic tip. I have actually used that tip for a few years myself. I think it's a really good one because, yeah, I think pleasers, we do fill the gap. After these this episode, Annette joins me, um, who I've worked with for many years, and we basically review the interview and go, what were the two or three tips we'll take away? And I know Annette's going to love that one because we often talk about we in the past would just someone would say, oh, you would fill the void if you like. And then you're you just don't get anywhere because you've just got all the work yourself. So that one is a great tip. Now, this is kind of linked to what we just talked about, because I think it's it's very similar to the pleasers. We used to say to people, take a ticket when they come to our desks because people would come and they go, hey, have you got a minute? And you just I used to go give them a ticket because they're going to have to come back. And then, you know, we used to laugh like cashier number six, please. Right. You know, just come because we're pleasers. We're going to come and answer your questions. Now, I loved your chapter on building boundaries like a boss and your boundaries playbook is so good. It's almost built for work and life, home life. Winning at setting boundaries seems to be centered around being clearer in communications, communicating your boundaries. Do you agree? Is that what it is? It's being clearer in your communications around your boundaries? I think boundaries are such a core part of any positive relationship, particularly for sensitive strivers. We have had such a hard time speaking up about our needs, like we were talking about with people pleasing, putting other people ahead of ourselves. So recognizing those boundaries and where they need to happen is first and foremost. One activity that I talk about in the book is really using your emotions as a guide for that. In particular, looking for where you feel the emotion of resentment. Resentment is a very strong signal that you have given more than you're comfortable with, that you have let a situation go on too long without addressing it. So maybe there's a work situation, you agreed to help a colleague out on a project. Now it's been six months and your involvement just keeps growing and growing and growing. You feel resentful of that. That's a great sign that it's a time to set a boundary to say, I've loved participating in this so far. In order to meet my other obligations, I'm going to have to step out of this. So let's work on a plan for over the next 30 days, how I can bow out and pass this along to somebody else. Honestly, for anyone listening, you've got to check out Melody's Boundaries Playbook. There's some great examples in there. Fantastic to look at. Now, Melody, we're coming towards the end of our chat and it's just been fantastic. Just a few are a little quick questions for you. What would you say would be the smallest possible change our listeners could do to have an impact and have a better day at work tomorrow? Someone's listening to this now and go, what's the one thing I could just do tomorrow to have a better day at work? Recognize and celebrate yourself for all of the tiny successes and redefining a success. A success doesn't have to be you got praise, you nailed a presentation. It can, if that happened, that's great. But success can also be having a hard conversation, setting a boundary, pushing through some sort of resistance. So acknowledging yourself for those small successes is what helps you build that sense of inner confidence. I have not done that. And I that's a really great takeaway because normally if I set a boundary with someone, it makes me feel bad for a day or two because I'm like, oh, they're going to not think so good of me now. But I love the reframe you've got there. Let's reframe it and take that as a success. I've set a boundary. That's so great, Melody. And the final question we ask every one of our guests, 
is can you recall the best advice you ever received that made you and makes you better at work? Don't put off work that can be done tomorrow for once in a lifetime moments today. Ooh, I got to sit with that. That is great. Melody, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. For more information on Melody, guys, you got to go to melodywilding.com. There you can find details on her amazing book, Trust Yourself. I actually did the audio book, which was great. And uh, you do still get the PDF, etc. through Audible. So do it. And her resilient program, which can help you regain your confidence, master your emotions and reach your full potential at work. That's out now, right, Melody? It is open right now for enrollment. If you're listening to this later, it might be open for waitlist registration, but sign up and we'll send you all the information when the doors do open again. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much. We've read, I've really enjoyed our chat and so amazing to get to talk to you after loving your book during lockdown in 2021. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Annette, welcome to another Let's Take This Offline. How great was the amazing melody? Did you enjoy her? I really enjoyed this interview, Kahal, so many insights and takeaways for us and our listeners. She's great, Melody. And and you know what? I followed her during the lockdown and read her book. Really, really great for anyone that's a, a sensitive striver. But Annette, three takeaways. What were your three takeaways from that interview? The first one that I really loved was this sensitivity as a superpower. And Kahal, I've had through my whole life at work and at home and growing up, you're too sensitive. Don't take it personally. So Melody's insights around this is biological and there's a genetic cause why we can't detach from others' feelings, why we take that all on board. I love that. But also that as a superpower and how sensitivity can help you be two steps ahead. And it resonated I can read the room and respond to the vibes from people, the the looks, the nuances, and it actually helps you with that being predictive, being responsive, solving problems before they fester too much. So I, I love that that insight. I thought that was great. Annette, you and I have chatted about that before. I think it's great. It's one of those things, being sensitive helps you. It can also hinder you because you can overthink things, etc. But if you can just get the balance right, it's a freaking great superpower because you can, as you said, read the room, pick up signals. Really great. So I love your your takeaway one. It is a superpower for sure. The second one, Kahal, was I love the honor roll hangover. And I have the trilogy, all three, people pleasing, perfectionism and, and overfunctioning. You know, it links to the Gretchen Rubin research that I come out as an obliger and that I, I meet commitments where I have an outer expectations where I've made a commitment. So if I've committed to someone, you know, I will be there and do that come hell or high water. So just the the insight around that and the awareness 
of the the impact on people pleasing perfectionism and over functioning and what you can do about them once you you have that awareness and I think how that leads into the third insight for me so it's quite linked which is around the strategic silence so when you're asking for what you need which is often around you know your needs where you have overcommitted trying to please and therefore over functioning that not filling up the space when you ask not filling up the awkward silences and they're not doing yourself justice and negating yourself by asking for something and then saying but if it's too much trouble or I understand you're already busy or others you might might be a priority all of those things that where you negate yourself and do yourself an injustice because you're not comfortable you feel the need to fill the space The other linkage there is that being aware of those negative feelings. So why are you doing that? So when you feel those negative feelings of resentment, that's your clue around setting a boundary. And Kahala also linked to when you're talking with Caroline Webb around those feelings of envy, which can potentially be a negative as well. Similarly, when you have that feeling of resentment, that's a sign around boundaries and around overwhelm and needing to do something to step out of people pleasing and perfectionism so that you don't move into a self-induced burnout. Interestingly enough, a lot of our takeaways were very similar. The only thing I would add for Melody is she said diversifying your identity is very important. You know, some of us can get really caught up in having a work identity. And I think that that's really true. People do get this work identity and then they don't have anything else. So it's really important. That's great advice because she said if work is your everything, that's not a good place to be. Diversifying your identity. That was another one I would have suggest to people to have a think about. I loved her detox your goals. Um, she goes, you know, a lot of us are so focused on all these goals and, you know, get here, get there. And like, actually, you can't see the wood for the trees. I loved that phrase, detox your goals, especially those ones that don't help you. And she also talked about this whole fake it till you make it. She didn't agree with that. I don't agree with that. And I loved the way she said, take action and the confidence will come. Just some really great tips in there from her. Melody is fantastic. Her book, Trust Yourself, is is so great. Her book will teach you a lot about how your sensitive sensitivity can be a superpower. So Thank you, Annette. I'm so glad you enjoyed Melody because you hadn't heard of Melody before I'd introduced you to her, had you? No, and such a great find, Kahal, and understanding myself as a sensitive driver, really, really practical, easy and resonating tips for me and, and quite a few people I know as well. Now, of course, it's time for our listeners question. Annette, over to you. Who are we hearing from on this episode? Kahal, we've had a LinkedIn direct message from Karina, and this is what Karina has written. I'm really struggling with what I perceive as passive aggressiveness from a member of the team I lead. I find this person is often moody. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells the entire time. When we have a one-on-one Zoom call following instances of sullenness and monosyllabic answers from this person in meetings, when I prompt on what's wrong and what's happening behind these instances, 
it ends up often in a very emotional outburst and anger and then often apologies follow these outbursts. It's wearing me down and stressing me out. I want this team member to speak well of me as their leader. I want a harmonious team environment. I'm finding myself overworking to compensate and I'm avoiding asking this team member to pull their weight. What are my options? I feel that Karina is a sensitive striver. I think Karina might be a little bit of a sensitive striver. And and look, you know, I think the thing is when you're the leader, unfortunately, times it comes with having to give news to people that they may not like. Right. You know, the leader's role is sometimes you're going to have to give direction to people and sometimes people are going to huff and puff. When I saw this LinkedIn message from Karina, it read more that Karina was the issue if that makes sense in it. I don't know if you got that impression. I think there's issues for both. There's things that Karina is doing where, so she's saying, I want this person to like me pretty much. I want to speak well of me. I want a harmonious, peaceful team. So that's the perfectionism. I'm finding myself overworking to compensate. So that's the overfunctioning. Um, so there's all those things there for Karina to potentially reflect on the things that she can do for herself and how she's responding but and then and there's that will also help her then the things that she separately needs to do in regard to what sounds like pretty immature and classic passive aggressive behaviors and I think we're both saying the same thing here like I I agree but Karina is the leader, right? So I, I think probably she has to take the bigger role here, right? And at the end of the day, yes, this person shouldn't behave like this, but Karina is going to have to kind of set some boundaries with this person and be clear and guide them that, you know, the approach they're taking is not appropriate, right? And I think that's where Karina needs to feel confident in saying this is not appropriate from this team member. This is not the way that you behave, Karina needs to be confident that it's not about that person loving Karina as the leader. Sometimes people don't like you as the leader. That's life as a leader. But this person getting into being sulky and big emotional outbursts, that's just not professional behavior. That's draining for Karina, you know, and I think that she's going to have to have a conversation with this particular person and be clear, you know, that this isn't the right type of way to act. Now, the thing I think she could do, Annette, I don't know if you agree with this, is maybe this person has something going on for them that they're having these emotional outbursts. And I think you do have a duty of care to the people in your team. If I was Karina, I would ask the question to say, how are you? How are things going for you? And if the person says, I'm fine, then I think Karina needs to give an example and say, I wanted to ask because I've noticed in certain conversations, et cetera, you become blah, blah, blah. Here's an, give an example. Don't, don't just say you have a tendency to, you know, in the meeting last Tuesday, I noticed that you blah, blah, blah. Be very specific and then have the strategic silence and let them answer the question. Karina strikes me as someone who would try and fill the void. I would give the example, ask them, can they tell you what's going on? If it is that that person, you know, maybe they have got an issue, what can we do to help resolve it? But if they don't have an issue and it's just their behavior or their, sorry, their approach, then I think she's going to have to say, look, but this isn't the way we work around here. 
We have respect. We work together. And, you know, if Karina felt bold enough, she could actually say how it's making her feel. She feels quite drained by it. And actually, that's not a great place to be. Kahal, I'm with you on that. And I think that next conversation that Karina has with this person about the monosyllabic answers or the sullenness, or the sulkiness in larger meetings occurs. I think that's about creating a safe environment making it specifically about what's happened. And if there is another emotional outburst, I think that Karina has to stop that meeting and say that once they are feeling better, that Karina wants to talk to them about what has happened. She wants to then move into a path forward for some help for this person. And then that next conversation that needs to be more formal about identifying the behavior, using language really carefully, being prepared and setting her clear standards and boundaries about this person needing to know that this pattern is not okay. And again, Kahal, reiterating what you've said there about Karina taking that responsibility for herself about what's going on around, you know, the people pleasing and perfectionism and overcompensating and overfunctioning there, you know, is, is not actually getting to the bottom and solving here and actually potentially, you know, allowing this to continue. And it's not good for Karina or, or this person longer term. I think we've given her some really good thoughts there on what to do. You know, it's a tough position to be in. I've seen it millions of times. This happens a lot. And as the leader, you have to take a little bit of the the bull by the horns here, lead from the front with this, find out what's going on and then set the direction because otherwise this will continue. And you know what, Karina, the rest of the team will be annoyed as well if they don't see you dealing with this because it looks like you're passing work on to others or you're taking on that person's work. That's not a good way to continue. But Karina, we're here to help. This is a one that I love to help on. I love these kind of ones because I love giving some direction on these particular ones. I've seen them a lot. So feel free to drop me a message on LinkedIn if you want to go a little deeper on that one. For anyone else that's got questions that are work-related, Annette and I are always here to help you with those. Contact us through the website or LinkedIn. And remember our website, betteratwork.com.au for lots more information on us and of course, Better at Work. So that's it, Annette, for this episode of Better at Work. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope to see you back here for the next one. Thanks so much, Kahal. Loved it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.